All right, well, last week we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we saw how David was sorrowful over Saul's death, his enemy, and it kind of gave us a good uh, illustration of how we should uh, deal with, with our enemies as well. But tonight, uh, we're going to see, remember, 1 Samuel was kind of the, the rise and fall of Saul, <laughs> And Second uh, Samuel is really the rise and eventual fall of David, even. So it's it's kind of a interesting story as we look through this. And so, chapter two talks about the triumph of David. And we're gonna as we read through this, we're just gonna kind of comment as we go because the the uh, the text kind of explains pretty much everything there is. So we'll, we'll read through it and make some comments here and there. But we see this struggle between these two houses arise. Remember, Saul has died. Uh, David is the up-and-coming king of Israel. Right now, he's just king of Judah. And so this is where this picks up in Second Samuel chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Uh, interesting note here. David is always, it seems, most times, inquiring right of the Lord. Something that Saul never learned to do. The Hebrew word has the same root as the, the king Saul because the, the name Saul means asked for. Uh, but Saul himself, even though that was his name, he didn't ask of the Lord as much as David did. So he asked the Lord, he says, hey, should I go up to the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And then David asked him again, well, to which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. Hebron was a key location uh, in the story of the, the patriarchs, and it was usually generally the place for their burial. They buried their dead there. And it really links David's story to Abraham's story. And so David is fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, and through, David's, through David, God's people will live in the land of God's blessing. And so you see this kind of theme over and over, David constantly inquiring. So David went up to them and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, at this time, Israel was divided. All right, you have uh, Saul was the, the, the king over the other tribes. D- David was the acting king here. He was anointed as king over Judah. And when they told David, it says, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Remember, they're the, the, the people who... Uh, Saul helped out, and so when they found out that he was dead and hung on a wall, they went and they took his body and they, they buried it. David sent messengers to them, of the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. All right, so they crown him as king, and then he gives kind of some good news to them. He says, uh, Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and valiant for Saul your Lord is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And so here you see once again David's constant referral to Saul as the Lord's anointed and he's a respecter of his position. I don't know if respected Saul himself very much after trying to kill him so many times, but he did respect the position that Saul held. And throughout the period of the judges and in Saul's reigns, the tribe of Israel, remember, remained to the large degree kind of like uh, what the European Union is today. It was a bunch of different tribes kind of doing their own thing, and obviously God wanted his people to be one, and so he's using David as a unifier in the tribes of Israel. And so the one tribe to acknowledge David as king did not mean that he was king of Israel, even though he was, technically. The other ones didn't acknowledge him. 
that was his own tribe. So they, they kind of made him the king there. And the, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were aligned with Saul. And so you can see David is trying to reach out. He's trying to unify people. He realizes, wow, this nation has been traumatized. Their king is dead, and now I'm supposed to be king. It'd be like if we had a president assassinated, you know, and you remember when JFK was assassinated and the vice president took it. He was very gracious in a lot of his actions because he realized he's only there because the other guy is dead, okay? And, and I think David is doing this kind of same, he has the same mentality. Uh, you would think that these people would be David's natural enemies because they, they fought against him, but he's reaching out to them. And he shows kindness. He shows uh, covenant loyalty to Saul. And David prays that God would show the same kindness and, and loyalty uh, to them. And that's, that's what his, his prayer there is in, in verses 6 and 7. Uh, he's keenly aware that he has to heal all these divisions. If he's going to be king over this kingdom of Israel, uh, he's, he has to align all these nations, kind of segments of Israel, you might say, tribes, under his authority. And some people say, well, this is kind of like a picture of Jesus who rises victorious to offer grace to his enemies. When you stop and think about those aligned to Satan, What's he do? He reaches out and he says, hey, come on to me, right? And so uh, the same thing is true here of David. Even though David's ascension to the throne is not going to be as straightforward as Christ. Uh, while David is being crowned by the tribe of Judah as their king, Abner, remember who Abner won? Abner was the head of the military under Saul. So Abner knew David was God's anointed, but what did he choose to do? He chose to reject them. And so we see here this competition begin in verse 8. He says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, his king's dead, so he's kind of in this power thing going on, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and, the ben, and, and Benjamin and all Israel. So here's Abner pulling kind of a power thing. He knows David was anointed king, and this competition begins. And, and what does he do? Uh, he, he would have heard even Saul, when he was alive, acknowledge as much when Saul acknowledged that David would be king in First Samuel chapter 24, verse 20, and also in chapter 26, verse 25. So, but he, he says, you know, I don't care. I'm going to reject David as our king, even though he's God's anointed. I'm going to anoint my own king. And so he picks Saul's one living son, Ishbosheth. And the result is really a standoff here between the armies of Abner, who is Saul's leader, and Joab, who is the leader of the military under King David. And so these, these men begin to have this contest. So verse 8 says, But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the Sarmer, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over and made him this designated king. Uh, verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. So they didn't acknowledge Ishbosheth as king, the house of Judah. They acknowledged David. And the time that David was king in, in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now, some people say, well, how, what's with the numbers here? Well, obviously, Ishbosheth didn't take command or didn't, didn't rise to the throne. They didn't anoint him as king immediately when Saul was dead. So the time frame here is kind of open for speculation. All right. There's, there's some uh, question there. But. Obviously, Abner refuses to acknowledge David, and so he raises up his own king, Saul's one living son, and makes him the king. And then you see in, in chapter or in verse 12, these two military heads who are really running things at this point in time, they're the ones that have all the experience. David's 
kind of new to this. He's a warrior, but he's kind of new to this whole thing of being king because it's the first time he's really being acknowledged as king. He was anointed before with Samuel, remember, but it didn't really take fruition until now. And um, Ishbosheth, he's a brand new guy too. So the military guys step in and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to kind of do a power play here. We've got to straighten this out. We can't just entrust our kings because of their inexperience to deal with this. So in verse 12, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of uh, uh, Zeruah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So you have these two military, at this point in time, enemies kind of in a standoff. And they're going to have a contest. This is what it is. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. So it's almost sport for them. Let's let these guys who we brought, we brought 12 guys. You've got 12 guys. Let them fight it out. And we'll see what happens. And lo and behold, if you look at what happens, uh, and Joab said, let them arise. Sure, we'll, we'll, we'll take you on. Then they arose and passed over by number. In other words, they found another guy on the other side of the pool, matched him up, and they went for it. Twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each warrior caught his opponent. All right, they went one on one, twelve men facing each other, by the head and thrust his sword in the opponent's side. So it really didn't accomplish much, because look at what happened. So they fell down all together. So you have 24 men now laying there dead. <laughs> okay, and the two leaders looking at each other going, well, that didn't help. Okay, that, that didn't really solve anything. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Ezrim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. In other words, obviously... I think the leaders were saying, okay, we'll, we'll give 12 guys up and surely these 12 guys can take those 12 guys and we'll win. And that's going to be the end of the battle. Kind of makes sense in a way. But the competition was quick, it was fierce, but it was and everybody was dead. So it really didn't settle anything at all. And so here is Abner rejecting David, God's anointed. And here is Ishbosheth, who is Abner's anointed. And they result in this standoff and they have this contest and the idea there is it's usually almost like i said for sport um and both of these folks all these folks are dead nothing is solved and so then they really got to fight it out and that's really what what it's what it's saying there uh they they all 24 of these men fall almost like kind of like synchronized swimming. I mean, they just go out, they stab each other, and they're dead. All right? Uh, and so the one thing you can pull out of that is the true Israel will not be determined by civil war. All right? God's hand is going to be involved here. Uh, Abner and Joab don't pick up on the clues. And so what, what happens? A, a brutal civil war follows. That's what it's, it's telling us there in verse 17. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so, obviously, David's side wins in the end, but at great cost. And Joab wins the battle after to flee. And this is where we get to the interesting part. In verse 18, there's a chase, a foot chase of all things. And it says, and the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asael. And Asael was swift on the foot as a wild gazelle. So he was just a speedster. This guy could run like nobody's business. Very uh, clearly, he was very determined. All right, he was, he was a guy who, once he set his mind to do something, he was going to complete it. Period. All right, they just defeated Abner and his men. Abner's running away. This guy takes off on foot after him. 
And Asahel pursued Abner. And as they went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Pray. I mean, he was not going to be deterred. Verse 20. Then Abner realized somebody was following him clearly. He turns around and he looks behind. He says, is that you? I say, remember, these guys know each other. All right. And he answered, yeah, it's I. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. Don't come after my armor. See, that's what Asahel was doing. He was going after the leader, which kind of made sense. But he obviously wasn't a very, he didn't have any other skills other than being able to run pretty fast, as we're going to find out here in a second. And so he said, look, there's dead guys all around you. You wiped this out. Take some of their armor. You don't need mine. Why are you coming after me? But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. He just stayed the course. And Abner said to him again, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? So obviously, Abner is a, is, is a much more skilled uh, warrior than this fast-footed uh, Asahel. He says, you know, why, why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother, Joab? Look, I don't want to tick off your brother. You know, I, this doesn't have to happen. Please listen. He's, he's almost begging the guy. But he refused to turn aside. He's coming right at him. And at this point, they were in striking distance. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back. So kind of a kind of very vivid picture. This guy's running probably full force in Abner, and he's standing there with his spear, and he, it's not even the, he's running so fast, it's not even the sharp end of the spear, it's the butt end, but it goes right through him anyway, which is kind of a weird way to die. And he fell there, and he died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So, basically, it ends, this chase ends in the death of Asahel by Abner. And they, they, uh, all who came to the place, it says, where he'd fallen and died, stood still. In other words, they were, what's going on here? We're kind of taken back. Verse 24, but Joab... And Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Emah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. In other words, okay, we're not going to run. Then Abner called, Shall the sword devour forever so he he kind of puts out a a truce says hey are we going to just kill each other is this what this is about do you not know that the end will be bitter in other words more people are going to die how long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers wow all of a sudden they're their brothers and joab said as god lives if you had not spoken surely the of their brothers until morning. In other words, they would have hunted you down and killed you. But you know what? You kind of raised the white flag. You said, hey, let's, let's call a truce here. So verse 28, so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. So you see a, a discipline, a respect, really on the side of David's army that Probably wasn't there just because Saul was a leader who didn't really get a lot of respect from his men. And I think it kind of drifted down to, to Abner as well. But here, all Joab does is blows the trumpet and everything stops. Dead tracks. Okay, you don't want to do this anymore? Fine, we won't do it. Verse 29, and Abner and his men went all that night through to Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from the pursuit 
of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants. Let's take a tally. All right, give me a Sid wrap here. What's going on? From David's servants, 19 men besides Ashel. So 20. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So they turned around and went back, okay, after they, they buried their, their fallen comrade. But you can see how lopsided this thing is. Because, I mean, you've you got to remember, out of those numbers... There's 12 that were the face-off, right, that died. And you subtract that, they, you know, they, they lost under, under 10 people in this whole, this whole batter, battle. Um, and then chapter 3 begins, it doesn't, it's just like nonstop, it just keeps going, coming. Um, chapter 3, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. All right, so they weren't just going to, lay down and say, okay, well, we acknowledge David is king. No, they had their king, and they were going to try to, under Abner's rule, make this thing work. And you see a a betrayal going on here. Uh, It says, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. What does that show you? The Lord will bless, right, his anointed, and he will not bless those he desires not to bless. They were on the wrong side. So Saul became, the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. What's interesting is that even though Saul is dead, the people under him, especially Abner, really, I think, were uh, passionately desirous of power. And I think that kind of trickled down from Saul himself. Saul was a very jealous leader. I mean, think of how many times he tried to take out David. David didn't do anything to him. Okay, he helped them on occasion. Let him live several times. But he was just so possessed with this passion to be powerful. Uh, you can see his decline just go right off the map. And I think that follows in the footsteps of the people who were under his leadership, including Abner. And so they're not giving up the fight. They're thinking, hey, we've got to make this right. And the sons who were born to David at Hebron, one thing you're going to see here is David was a very busy man okay in a wrong kind of way all right he had two wives already but i mean it didn't stop there all right and so uh this is something that obviously god does not endorse all right he doesn't say this is good but to me it's evidence that the bible is true because it includes it you know, if I wrote this, I wouldn't include this about someone. I'd say, oh, I'll leave those details out. I want David to shine, right? But he, he, God includes all the grisly details. And so there were sons born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of uh, Enohim of, his, of Jezreel, his wife. And his second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Okay, that's his, his second wife of Abigail, the widow of Nabal Carmel, the third, Absalom, the son of uh, Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. So she was a Geshurite. And what they did back then, these leaders, these kings, sometimes they would intermarry just to uh, consolidate power. In other words, hey, oh yeah, my, my boy, you know, so-and-so, he's from your tribe. So, you know, we're good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I got one over here, too. That's what they did. And they figured, you know what? If they they spread themselves out, um, they would lessen the amount of enemies they would have. And so you see this this list of people here. And the fourth, verse 4, Adonijah, the son of uh, Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Israel, the Eglah, David's wife. And it's almost at the end there, David's wife, it's like, wow, he had, he had multiple. Yeah, he did. These were born to David in Hebron. And so you see this, this, uh, this thing kind of just 
unveil itself right before us. And, and God is showing us, you know, that, hey, David wasn't perfect by any means. I mean, he inquired of the Lord. I don't think he inquired of the Lord about these things. You know, oh, should I take this person as my wife? Shall I take that? Uh, he had six sons, each by a different mother. And, you know, this already the succession is looking complicated for him to take over the throne. And at a spiritual level, it really sets up a further disasters for, for God's people down the road, all this, this uh, polygamy that goes on here. But it's, it is what it is. So out of that, after he lists the, the sons there, verse 6, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Remember, who's the king of Saul's side? Do you remember his name? Yeah, Hibosheth, right? And so um, when, you, when, you, when you see that, and you realize, well, this guy is kind of a very uh, newbie. He doesn't really know Ishbosheth. Excuse me. He doesn't know what's going on. And so here's Abner saying, "Hey, I got to help this guy out. He's probably taking over more power, more power. Don't worry about Ishbosheth, king. I'll take care of it. I'll cover you. I got you covered." And it says Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. It wasn't the Lord making him strong. He was doing it himself. And it got to the point in verse seven. Uh, where there was kind of a, a stru- struggle here. It says, Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? In other words, who do you think you are? You know, this is not your concubine. This is not your woman. Who are you to to do this. This is disrespectful. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand, hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? He downplays the whole thing. He doesn't acknowledge it. He, he just kind of, eh, whatever. And, and so they have this disagreement. They, they have an a, uh, argument. And <clears throat> Ishbosheth is really offended that Abner would, would do this. And, uh, you know, the reference to the, the, the head of a dog there is just a way of, of insulting someone okay that's that's the idea it's not a it's not a good term it's it's a bad term and so he's insulting uh he feels insulted by this and so he says in verse 9 god do so to abner and more also if i do not accomplish for david what the lord has sworn to him he's acknowledging now all of a sudden right he's acknowledging david's rise to the throne and he says here, and, and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf. So it's almost like his power play was found out. He was compromised. So now he's got to do another, something else. And so he says, hey, you know what? I, I'm not going to follow this Ishbosheth guy anymore. I'm going to reach out to David. Even though he was our enemy, I'm going to reach out to him. And so he sends messengers to him in verse 12. And they come up with an agreement. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. What was David's goal? What was David trying to do? He was trying to unite Israel. So David probably looks at this and goes, Hey, this is a no-brainer. right? He's, he's offering to bring the nations under Ishbosheth, the, the tribes, right under my, my rule. And that's what God wants. That's what I want. And he says, I'll I'll bring over all Israel to you. In other words, you can be the king. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. Sometimes you think if David was just naive or, you know, because he's always agreeing to these things with people sometimes. He's just a, seems like a good-hearted individual. Um, 
but he says, I will make this covenant with you, but there's one thing I require of you. That is, you shall not see my face. In other words, there's not going to be any agreement until you first bring me Michal, Saul's daughter. Remember who Michal is. Remember he was promised to her, promised to him before, and then Saul went back on the deal after the, the uh, foreskins of the Philistines were delivered. He says, so unless I get her, um, there's no deal. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal. Notice he says it's his wife, because rightfully it is, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. It's double what was asked. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. So here she is married to somebody else. Ishbosheth doesn't care. He doesn't really care. He's like, okay, fine. We can we can resolve, uh, you know, this this kind of conflict. We can deal with this. Let's do it. And uh, so he, he goes. He gets Michal, takes her from her husband. But verse sixteen. But her husband went with her, crying after weeping, saying, "Hey, you can't take my wife. What are you doing?" Weeping all the way to Bahram. And finally, Abner had to turn around and say, hey, you know what? <laughs> Get out of here. You've had enough. <laughs> Cry, baby. Go home. <laughs> You're going home wifeless. Sorry. And um, obviously, if he didn't do it, what do you think Abner would have done? <laughs> you know, so he, he returned. He didn't have any choice. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. In other words, let's, let's make this deal. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant, David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. And so they came up with this agreement when Abner came, verse 20, with 20 men to David at, at, at Hebron. David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise, go, and will gather all Israel, my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. You see that that final word there, he went away in peace. That was David's goal. He didn't want to fight. He he wasn't out there trying to, just like he wasn't trying to rile up Saul when he was chasing him. Okay, he thought, well, the backing of Israel is secured. Abner's going to go to Hebron, and the deal is sealed with a feast. Not so fast. This is what I'm saying. It's like, a, it's like a turn of the story on every page. Verse uh, 22. Then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid. So they're out raiding, bringing in much spoil, dealing with some of their enemies. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away. So while Joab and his raiding parties out during the raiding, that's when Abner comes and visits with David and says, hey, let's cut a deal here. And I think he did it at an opportune time when Joab wasn't around, clearly. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, and he sent him away, and he had gone in peace the second time. It says that. It's making an emphasis of that. Verse 23, when Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go. I mean, can you imagine what? And he has gone in peace. He just let him walk away. Verse 24, Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. He's saying, Our enemy was here and you let him go? Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you. So he, he begins to try to reason with David why he should have taken Abner out. This guy is not a good guy. The son of Ner came to deceive you and 
to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. In other words, he came here on a spy mission, you idiot. And you let him walk right out of here with all the information. That's what he's telling the king at this time. And it's kind of an interesting thing that happens here in verse 28. You see, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. He didn't tell David. So the very thing he's accusing David or of Abner of doing, deceiving the king, he's, what's he doing? He's deceiving the king. Okay, it's hard to know who the good guys are in this story, to be honest with you. Um, so he, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah, but David did not know about it, so he did it behind the king's back. That's not a good thing. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. Hey, come here, let's talk about this deal you made. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Remember, this is the guy who killed his brother. All right, so at this point, uh, he, he, he thinks somehow that, okay, it's all worked out on paper. I'm, I'm, I'm good to go, you know. Uh, sure, I'll meet with you, what's up? And stabs him, kills him. Same way as his brother was killed. The big difference was that was in battle, right? This was revenge, okay? So this is clearly just downright murder. Verse 28, afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. In other words, I had absolutely nothing to do with this. Remember, Abner is becoming more powerful, more powerful. It'd be very easy for people to think, oh, David had him taken out. But David doesn't operate that way. And so he wants to make it very clear. Verse 29, May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all of his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous, so all these kind of curses upon his line, or who holds a spindle, some feel that's a crutch, or who is a leprous who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab... And Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So they took it into their own hands. And uh, David, once again, is, is guiltless in this. He had nothing to do with it. Uh, it wasn't peace that Abner found in making this, this treaty. Uh, but he, he unfortunately found death. And then here in verse 31, Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes. In other words, this is a time of mourning. Put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. The, and King David followed the bier, which is kind of the funeral procession there, um, of the casket. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the graves of Abner and all the people wept and the king lamented for Abner saying should Abner die as a fool dies your hands were not bound your feet were not fettered as one falls before the wicked you have fallen and all the people wept again over him so it's it's kind of a lament for Abner here, and he just wants to point out, I had had nothing at all uh, to do with this. Verse 35, Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread. He's fasting. While it was yet day, but David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else, till the sun goes down. It's a sign of mourning. And all the people took notice notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. Was he a people pleaser? No, I think he was just being respectful of this fallen enemy. Verse 37, So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know what a prince and great man has fallen this day in Israel. And I was gentle today. Though anointed king, these men, the son of uh, 
Zariah, all the more severe than I, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So David publicly condemns Joab. He commands Joab to wear clothes of mourning and to walk in front of the procession of the funeral. Uh, He walks along with them, leads the people in weeping over Abner. He puts together this little lament of Abner. He refuses to eat, and he disowns Joab and his brothers. Now, Abner had led this army of Israel for many years. And much of it, I think, was genuine. Uh, But it was also, you might say, politically expedient for him to do so. Abner was the kind of guy who, if it was good for Abner, it was good. If it wasn't good for Abner, then it wasn't good. You know, he didn't really inquire the Lord of these things. He just kind of, hey, if it's good for me, it's, it's good for everybody. If it's not, then you know, uh, it's not good for anybody. And so you notice there in verses 31 to 37, seven times the writer refers to all the people. Um, All the people took note, were pleased, and they did all this, you know, all the people of Israel. And uh, it's just a a way that it it worked out in a a political way for, for David. David is... Literally uh, gentle, while Joab is considered this this hard, hard man. And you know we're going to draw some conclusions here in the end, uh, just talking about Abner because you look at him and he was committed to the cause, but was this a good thing he was doing, a bad thing? What was going on here? Uh, so then, chapter four begins with the betrayal of Ishbosheth, the other king. And it says, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. Remember, he's kind of a new guy, didn't have a whole lot of courage to begin with, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was uh, Banah, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin, from Beroth, for Beroth also is counted as part of Benjamin. The Benjamites fled to Githam and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled. Remember, Jonathan's dead, but he had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as they fled in in the haste, he fell and became lame. Something happened with his legs. Couldn't walk. And his name was uh, Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Benah sent out. And about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. So there's the king, kind of relaxing in his recliner. And they came into the midst of the house, as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Benah, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of Arabah all night, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Remember, they're thinking, ah, we're going to take revenge on this. This is a good thing we're doing. They're taking it into their own hands. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who has sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But you look at the response of David. They, they basically assassinated this guy. And uh, verse 9, But David answered Rechab and Benah's brother, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, 
I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. Remember that from before in, in, in 1 Samuel. Which was the reward I gave for, for his good news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require blood at your hand to destroy you from the earth? In other words, you know what's coming, pal. Verse 12, And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Uh, so you read these couple chapters, you're like, wow, what is going on? It's like nightmarish kind of a story, right? Um, there's this assassination, there's an avenging of the assassination. All these things are going on, and you stop and you say, you know, who are the good guys here? This guy Abner is a mix of self-sacrificial loyalty and this, this mix of self-interest. And he's, he's just power-hungry. He's, he's trying to do this power brokerage deal in every paragraph. And he makes Ishbosheth king rather than himself. And he does all that he can do to avoid killing Ashael. So you see both, both sides of, of, of uh, Abner. Um, yet he still sides with Ishbosheth's opposition, not only to David, but to God himself. So he, he's saying all these things. Oh, no, David's the anointed one. And he, you know, as soon as it's politically expedient for him to say these things, that's what he does. And so when you stop and you, you look at this story and you say, okay, what, how do we apply this to us? Okay. Um, and I'm just going to make a quick, app, quick application before we close. Because, you know, when you look at who are the good guys in this story, you know, you have to stop and you say, well, who are the key players? All right. The key players is not Abner. The key player is not Joab. The key player is not even David. Who is the key player? key player is God. The key player is God. And in the next chapter, we're going to see how God uses all this stuff to finally have David anointed as king. But just focusing on Abner for a second, you say, okay, he was loyal to to Saul for all those years. He was a good warrior. He did all this. Was he godly or not? How can we look at Abner and apply that to us today? Um, Back in the 1600s, there was a guy... Matthew Mead, he wrote a book called uh, uh, Almost Christian. And it talks about, the theme of the book is, it's basically a list of things that you can have in your life and almost be a Christian, but really not. And just a couple things. An almost Christian, it's, it, the name of the book is Christian Discovered. But... Um, when you think of Abner, and you think even of people who name the name of Christ today, almost Christians, they always say godly things. They will always say godly things. Out of their mouths come godly things. When you hear what Abner said, oh, David's, you know, appointed, he's, he's the one, yeah, yeah, may God bless him, and he's saying all these things. He understands the Davidic covenant. He says, yep, he's going to be the next king. The content of Abner's words are true. And so many times when you talk, to people, and you're trying to discern whether they're a Christian or not, they may say godly things. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. That really doesn't. Secondly, almost Christians not just say godly things, they believe godly things. They literally believe godly things. Um, Abner tells David, Hey, this is the Lord's promise to you, David. You remember, you're anointed king. He tells Ishbosheth, the Lord has promised these things. You know, God has a, a covenant with David. He's going to be king over the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, he's saying all the right things. And you think, wow, Abner's on the right, the right uh, path here. He believes godly things. He says godly things. And then thirdly, people of this persuasion, they actually do godly things. They do godly things. Um, in chapter uh, 3, verse um, 9, he cries out to God. He says, God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David uh, what the Lord has sworn to him. So he's like, hey, I'm on, on the right side of this. I'm going to do the right thing. And 
it's, it's unfortunate because just because you say the right thing, you say a godly thing, or you believe a godly thing, or you even do a godly thing, none of those things make you a Christian. None. What makes you a Christian? Because it's not by what we do, right? It's what resides in our heart. The problem with Abner was he didn't love God. He didn't love the Lord. He loved himself more than anybody. You see that in his actions. If it worked out for Abner, then it was great. And see, there's a lot of so-called believers today, when you dig down and you start to talk to them a little bit, it's all about them. You know, they don't really love God. They're saying all the right things. They're doing the right things, maybe. But when you dig down into their own heart with their own words, they convict themselves because all they talk about is themselves. Even in their testimony sometimes. Well, I found God. I did this, and then I do this. and then, Boy, it's like, where's the Lord in this? And I get it. It's just out of ignorance sometimes. I don't think it's even malicious as it was with Abner. But see, the problem is not what they're doing or what they're believing or even what they're saying. The problem is what is in their heart. See, and that's what truly sets a Christian apart is that love for the Lord that resides in the heart because God has transformed the soul. And all of a sudden, you become nothing and God becomes everything. So the idea of sacrificing for your Lord, that's not even an issue. It's not even a question. Why? Because you love God so much you want to do whatever he wants do. You wake up in the morning, Lord, what do you have for me today? Just tell me to be pleasing to you today. When you lay your uh, head on the bed at night, you lay down and, and you just tell the Lord more, I, Lord, I, I pray that you know, what I did today was honoring to you. See, that's a love for the Lord. Um, motives matter a lot more than actions. Anybody can do good things. Anybody can say good things. Anybody can say they believe good things. But, you know, here you see Abner, and it was all about Abner. And I pray that as believers, what we can walk away from this is, you know what? It's not whose side you're on. It's not none of that. It's, it's where is your heart with the Lord? You know, are you really grappling over sin in your life? Are you really crying out to the Lord and, and asking him to increase, you know, your love for him and your dedication to him and your service of him each and every day? Because that's what a believer would do. And so... Uh, next week, we'll get into David anointing, being anointed king over all of Israel.